This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon offered on the second Sunday after Pentecost, June 6, 2021, at St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in Roanoke, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 20, and chapter 11, verses 14 through 15. This is when God allows the people a king and Saul is anointed as king. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For a country that fought a war to get out from under a monarchy, Americans have a curious fascination with the British royalty. I think our current fascination probably began in the early part of the 20th century when King Edward VIII abdicated his throne so he could marry Mrs. Simpson, Wallace Simpson, an American socialite and divorcee. That certainly caught the attention of the newspapers and the media here, and that sort of set us off for the running as we followed the ups and downs of the British monarchy. Elizabeth II would marry her dashing prince and have children, and Prince Charles would not disappoint us when he married Princess Diana. But as that relationship failed, we became even more fascinated with sort of the darker parts of the relationship within the monarchy. We certainly see it with how we follow Prince William and Prince Harry from a primetime interview with Oprah and following every sort of move and fight that happens within the royal family. We Americans are right there front row for it. Even our most recent retelling of our creation myth as a country, the musical Hamilton, couldn't leave the British monarchy out of it. If you're not familiar with Hamilton, right, it's a musical written by a man named Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he retells sort of the founding fathers and the founding of the country from the viewpoint of Alexander Hamilton, and he sets it to contemporary music using rap and dance and casting characters that are African-American or Latino or other persons of color. It is a musical that has broken all sorts of ticket sale records, was wildly popular. You had young people walking around singing about Alexander Hamilton and the foundation of the National Bank of all things. It really kind of touched into the zeitgeist of who we were. It was supposed to come as the traveling musical performance to Birmingham during 2020, but as you can imagine, that didn't happen. But for those of us that wanted to see the musical Hamilton, we got a reprieve during the monotony of the shutdown because the Disney Channel, of all things, Disney Plus, had bought the rights to a filmed version of the musical. It was originally supposed to be released in October 2020 in the theaters, but when it became clear that the shutdown was going to be much longer than we all anticipated, 
Disney Plus decided to release it on their streaming platform on July 3rd, just in time for the holiday weekend. And so all of us that wanted to see Hamilton or relive seeing Hamilton in the theater got to tune in. And right there in Act One, here comes King George III in all of his British regalia, dropped in into the middle of the story of the American Revolution. Lin-Manuel Miranda says that he got the idea to add the king in while he was on his honeymoon. And it sort of came to him that it didn't seem quite right to have a story about the revolution, but never have the other side of the conversation present on stage. So King George III shows up in all his regalia. And history tells us King George likely had some mental health issues and was a bit odd. And so the character is played kind of like a coiled spring that's ready to pop at any moment. The first song that the king gets to sing is an upbeat little number entitled, You'll Be Back. And the king is reminding the colonists who have just declared their independence of their long-standing relationship with the crown and the increasingly violent actions that the king was willing to take to keep them from leaving and, oh, by the way, even if you manage to leave, you'll be back, right? The king then shows up a couple of more times, one at the end of the war to sing a song about what comes next and to remind the now new country that it's a lot harder to govern yourself than you might think. And then he shows up at the end to poke fun at America's plans for elections and transitions of power. The whole time that the character of King George III appears um, in the musical, he's on the same stage as the other characters, sometimes walking in and out as other characters are moving around. But there is no interaction between the king and the founding fathers depicted in the play. King George in the musical is aloof, and he offers comic relief through sort of snarky songs and commentary. Our reading this morning finds us in the midst of 1 Samuel with the people of God at a major turning point, sort of a revolution of their own. I think it is helpful to understand where we are in this book to get an idea of where we are in the larger story of the scriptures. We're after the Exodus, right? So Moses has led the people out of Egypt. There has been the covenant, the giving of law. The people have entered into the promised land under Joshua. And then there they have begun to live their lives with God as their sovereign. Now, sometimes things didn't go well for the people. And there'd be problems either internally because they wouldn't be taking care of each other the way they're supposed to be, or there'd be external threats of war or an invasion. And so God would send God's spirit onto an individual who would rise up as a leader to lead the people either into a more just way of living or to fend off the external stretch, the external threat. And that's what we called judges, right? We have that wonderful book where we get one judge after another calling Israel back to the Lord and keeping them safe. And all during this time, there was a family or a group of priests that continued to worship according to the covenant. This seems to work. Israel gains wealth. They begin to farm. They begin to get stability. But as 1 Samuel opens... The people of Israel again have some real problems that they are facing. 
The priests are corrupt. They're taking the offerings for their own purposes. They're not taking care of the people. The newfound wealth has made them made Israel an attractive location for invasion by the Philistines. The book opens with the call, birth and call of Samuel, who would then turn around and remove the corrupt priest and lead the people. And it also includes this fantastic scene where the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, but God's presence there brings plagues on them. And so they send the Ark back to Israel in a cart because they don't want it amongst them. It's a show of power by God that while God is removed from the people, God can still act to save them. But by the time we get to our chapter this morning, Samuel is old. And his sons that have been brought up to take his place have turned out to be just as corrupt as Eli and Eli's sons before them. The Philistine threat is still there. And the people want to know that themselves and their stuff are going to be protected. And so they come to Samuel with a simple request. Give us a king to govern us. Give us a king so we can be like all those other nations that have kings that lead armies into war and that protect their people and that gather up wealth for them. And so Samuel goes to the Lord and tells God that the, what the people want. And for the next little bit, I must confess that the times that I read this, I can't help but hear God's voice sounding a little bit like King George III in Hamilton doing a little dance singing, you'll be back. Because God's response is that Samuel needs to listen to the people, but that Samuel needs to warn the people about what this means for them to have a king. That if the people choose to supplant the sovereignty of God with an earthly power, there is a cost. They're going to lose some of their freedom. They're going to be conscripted into military service. The king will make servants of the people. He'll take property from some people to give it to his cronies that have served him well on the other side. The king will also require the people to tithe not to God but to the crown. While we don't get the text this morning, I think it is helpful to know that God has to tell Samuel more than once that he has to listen to the people. There's a back and forth between Samuel and God. And Samuel is really reluctant to do this because he knows even if he warns the people that they're still going to say, give me a king. And he wants God to think better about this really bad idea. But God says, they're rejecting me, not you, Samuel. And I say, listen to their voice. After all the warnings, just like Samuel thought was going to happen, the people say, no, we hear what you're saying, but we're determined to have a king over us so that we can be like our neighbors and so that the king can go out and fight our battles. And so God gives them what they want. In the closing verse, we hear that Saul is made king over God's people. Now in this moment, God is not the jealous, ego-driven king like King George that we hear about in Hamilton. From the beginning, God has sought relationship with his creation, and true relationship cannot be compulsory. Earthly kings require loyalty by force, 
But God offers loyalty built on love. The God of Israel will not use armies to make the people love him. The God of Israel will not take glee at their failures or defeat. Instead, God, even when rejected, remains present with them in every moment and says, if it is a king that you need to see that I love you, then it's a king that you'll get. The story that begins in 1 Samuel and continues all the way through to the first book of Kings is the story of Israel's journey from a confederation of tribes under the sovereignty of God to a kingdom or a nation. From the Ark of the Covenant traveling in a tent to being found in the temple in Jerusalem. It is a story with fantastically complex characters where for some of the first time in early literature, we get the inner thoughts and feelings of the main characters. We get to know how Saul feels and what David thinks and what Solomon thinks. And we get to know what God feels and thinks in these moments. It's not simply history or folklore, but it is practical theology being worked out about what it means to be the people of God and still have earthly powers. How does our recognition of God as king relate to our recognition of human kings and governments? How does citizenship in the world relate to our discipleship of God? And what is the role of the church in all of this? The story that we get this morning doesn't answer those questions directly. But it gives us a lens that we can view the stories to come. It gives us a lens to look through to see why God acts the way God does in the calling of Saul as king and David and on into the creation of the nation. And while we can certainly enjoy the stories of intrigue and adventure, watching the rise of King David jump off the page, it is very important that we not lose sight of the fact that these are stories of God's people and of God's work at redeeming their flawed leadership and their relationships. It's the work of God and the language of mankind that we need to hear that continues that relationship, not our own strength or smarts or will. The stories that we will hear in the coming weeks in 1 Samuel that begin today is the story of God at work in all the messiness of human life and a God that heard the people and responded. Amen.